The title of the series is called Living and Looking. Living for Christ and looking for His return. Because as you, as we said in the first message in the introduction, the book is structured in such a way that the first part of it is an emphasis on the church and Christian living generally and some of Paul's remembrances. And, and then the second part from about half of chapter 4 and chapter 5 is some of the most uh, important passages, sections that are in Scripture concerning the second coming of Christ. So we are living for Christ, but also with an eye towards the future, anticipating His return. The church, by way of reminder, was planted, established by Paul. There's a record of that in Acts chapter 17. Paul uh, could not stay in Thessalonica. That Once the church began to prosper and converts began to grow, uh, there were those in the uh, certain sectors of the Jewish leaders and area, the uh, folks there that didn't like what God was doing, and so Paul had to leave other, under the threat of arrest and perhaps even death. And so later, Paul sent Timothy to go check on this church as he was burdened and wanting to know how they were doing because he knew what type of persecution was taking place there. And so Paul wrote what we have here in this letter, the first letter to the church at Thessalonica, in response to Timothy returning to where Paul was in the city of Corinth and giving him a good report of how the church was doing. So Paul excited and encouraged and enthused, wanted to write this church an apostolic encouragement, and thus we have this record. As we continue in chapter 2, we're going to look primarily at verse 13, but we may look at some scriptures, 13 through 16, a little bit. And we want to see, as we looked in the first chapter, we saw that Thessalonica, what is oftentimes people note about this church, sometimes they call it a model church, not that it was perfect or without its uh, issues, but it had such a, such a, a testimony of faithfulness that it is often seen as a church that really models uh, the Christian community. And so in chapter 1, we, the first uh, couple of messages, we saw that Thessalonica was a model because it was a converted church. They evidenced genuine conversion. They evidenced being born again. This was evidence in how they lived. In chapter 2 last week, the first uh, verses are there of verses 1 through, uh, I think we went through 8, 9, or 10, and saw how through the Apostle Paul, we saw that this was also a disciple-making church. That as Paul was making disciples of this church, in turn, we gathered principles from Paul's writing there in the first half of chapter 2 of the importance of making disciples. God, Jesus has not just called us to be fans we are called to be disciples. And so we looked at that. And so we come to this part and beginning in verse 13. I'm just going to read verse 13 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, And we also thank God 
constantly for this. Now notice what he is thanking God for. Constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Let's pray before we dive into the Word today and draw uh, encouragement from God's Word and hear the voice of God through the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this holy Word that we have today, that we can understand Your will, Your purpose for us individually and also as a church. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in Your sight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Thessalonian Christians... They had the right kind of response that pleases God, the right kind of response to the Word of God that pleases God. When they heard the Apostle Paul's message. Now, keep in mind, the, the New Testament was in the process of being developed through the writings of the, the Apostles and other writers uh, concerning the Gospel. So, they didn't have a bound uh, New Testament like we have with our Old Testament. They did have the Old Testament Scriptures, but the Word of God that was being given through the apostles, and in this case the Apostle Paul, they recognized that this wasn't just any message, but this was a message from God. That was, and they responded in such a way of responding to the truth and were willing to submit to its authority. And that's why... This morning, as we look at this, that's why we need to say, I need to do likewise, that God's Word transforms the lives of those who welcome it, who those who receive it. They received it. They welcomed the Word. So this morning, uh, just to break this down, I want you to notice with me three observations uh, concerning the believer and what we need to bring in having our welcoming and being welcoming to the Word of God, welcoming it in our life. Number one, the believer must have a recognition of the Bible. And I'm using the Bible uh, just for simplicity. As I said, the Bible or the New Testament was yet to be completed, uh, but uh, I'm just using the Bible uh, instead of, we could say, the Word of God, Scripture. But the believer must have a recognition of the Bible, of the Word of God, recognizing that in the Word of God, God is speaking. This is God's Word. Again, I'll draw your attention to verse 13. He says that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as just the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. So we recognize, like the church at Thessalonica recognized that the Bible, Scripture, is God's Word. That's the reason we put uh, primary importance on worship on Sunday morning to bring God's Word, incorporating it as our worship. As a church, we're involved in teaching the Bible, teaching the Word of God. Right now, children are being taught uh, the Bible. And when the women get together and the men get together on Tuesdays or uh, on Wednesday nights, uh, we're studying Romans. We prioritize the Bible because we believe it is God's Word. And in this context, the Apostle Paul 
was the transmitter, if you could say, the, the author of, as he wrote these letters, that they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they received this apostolic word, not just as Paul's opinion, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now remember Thessalonica, as we talked about in the first message, was a hodgepodge, it wasn't a, Gent, a Jewish community. It was a Gentile area in the northeast part of Greece. It, it still exists today called Thessaloniki is actually what it's referred to today. It is the second largest city in Greece and it was a port city. And so anything and everything that came through eventually made its way of coming through Thessalonica and they were a hodgepodge just like every Gentile culture of every type of religious, philosophical, pagan uh, ritual, religion. It was a city of great cultural diversity. Uh, it was a breeding ground for new religions and philosophical ideas. And so these Thessalonians, they heard it all. They'd seen it all. They heard every kind of persuasive argument. But there was something that was different when they heard the Word of God. Because the Word of God has the power of the Holy Spirit behind it, and they received the word of Paul as the word of God. It was a message that was, as he says in verse 13, it was not just a message or a word of God, but was a message about God. How do we know God? How do we learn about God? How can we understand his purpose and his will? He has put his will in Scripture. That's why we're belaboring and doing this today and, and encourage you to read the Bible, listen to the Bible, because we're hearing God speak. Now keep in mind, in this context, as I reference, the Apostle Paul is God's mouthpiece, is God's mouthpiece. And there are not apostles today, I know there are some that, that uh, believe that, but these apostles had a very unique role, and one of the unique roles that they had was that God used them in their ministry and in these writings and accounts to, to formulate what the Holy Spirit oversaw to be the Word of God that was without error. So Paul is writing a letter to the Thessalonians, but the Holy Spirit is overshadowing that process. Paul uses his personality when he writes to the Thessalonians, John uses his personality. It isn't that they become uh, you know, automated robots, but they're using their personality. They're using their, their different writing skills, but the Holy Spirit is doing something. In fact, Peter helps us to understand what is taking place here and what took place when the apostles and those who formulated what we know as Scripture of the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 1 Verse 20 and 21. Notice what Peter says. He says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no word of Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. No, no Scripture is just somebody's ideas. For no prophecy or no word was ever produced by the will of man. But notice the language here, and you understand something of how the Word of God was formulated, the New Testament and Old Testament as well. But notice this, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadowed 
these words to ensure that they would be written without error, would be written without contradiction. And so the Word of God was received, it was welcomed as the literal Word of God, but it was a message about God. It revealed something uh, about God, about His character. God was making Himself known. Aren't you glad that what we need to learn and understand about God, He's given us obviously the Holy Spirit as we've been born again, but He's given Scripture, He's given an abundance of Scripture that we can know and understand Him, His character. It isn't just an exercise in learning stuff, but ultimately if our learning, hear me, if our learning about God does not produce or cause us to worship God, cause us to expand who God is in our hearts and minds, that our faith has grown, something is wrong in the process. There's nothing wrong in the content, but there must be something wrong if we are learning a lot of things about God and there's no change in our life. There's no adoration of God. All theology is doxology. Doxology is worship. So if your theological learning is not causing you to have a heart that is being grown and warmed towards God, then something is off in that process. But the Word of God isn't just, it, when it reveals about God, we understand on this side of the, of the New Testament as New Covenant believers that the message of God, the Bible, is God's Word about Christ. He is the central theme. He's the central character of everything that is happening. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, this exact same thing in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, and that's, you could go through the Old Testament, God had prophets, priests, kings, judges, various ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in the last days, Christians have saw themselves in the last days from Acts chapter 2 to right now. We are in the last days. But in these last days, what has He done? He has spoken to us. God has spoken to us. How? By His Son. God has spoken finally and completely in Christ. Christ is the capstone of the revelation of God. It's Christ. We're not waiting on a Messiah. We're not waiting on somebody to be born in the Middle East or give us a vision about God. We have Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus Christ, from Genesis 3.15 of that promise of the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent to the fulfillment of Christ in all His glory and resurrection and ascension, that Jesus Christ has been the central theme of this book. And the reason that's important is because if you don't know Christ, you can't understand the book. You can't understand God's Word without Christ. You know, Jesus Himself reiterated this, and any opportunity I have to read it. Look over in your Bibles. It won't be on the screen. But look in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 24. Hang a left and go to Luke, Luke chapter 24. And I love this. I, I know I, I share this again many times, but it's just always such a rich reminder. 
Luke chapter 24, Jesus has been crucified in the account given by Luke, the physician, who was, by the way, uh, accompanied the Apostle Paul. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And so this is Luke's account of the life of Christ. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and, and in Luke chapter 24, around verse 13, uh, the resurrected Jesus is, comes alongside of two of his followers that were walking, going to a town called Emmaus. And as they were walking, I mean, I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit, is that they, they were talking about all those things that had taken place in Jerusalem. What, all, what things? Well, Jesus' death, right? His crucifixion. And they as yet apparently did not know that Jesus had been resurrected. He was resurrected on the third day, the first day of the week. And so Jesus, uh, not identifying himself, and comes up on uh, as they were walking, and, and they're talking, and he says, uh, uh, verse 19, uh, what things, what things are you talking about? And they, they you know, I can almost imagine, like, this is the biggest thing happening in Jerusalem, and you don't know what's happening? I mean, he's just, you know, obviously he knows. Uh, but they begin to explain about how this Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet in mighty deed, verse 19, uh, and the word before him uh, and all the people, and talks about how he was seized by the, the leaders and crucified, and, and they had taken his body, and, and, and it says, verse 24, some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but we did not see him. See that? But verse 25, here's what I want you to pay attention to. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the what? Prophets, that's the Old Testament, shorthand, has spoken. Then he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, Christ is Greek for Messiah, that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Now verse 27, remember we're talking about how the word of God, the central theme is Christ, and Jesus gives them a little Sunday school lesson. And beginning with Moses, that's the, we could, that's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's just kind of shorthand, what we call the Old Testament, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what did Jesus do? He interpreted to them in what? All the scriptures, not some, but all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you see that Jesus Christ is central to the Old Testament? Now, move on ahead to uh, verse 36. Now, this resurrected Jesus just appears with his disciples, right? Now, that would scare me, and I'm sure it would scare you, but he, he just shows up. And he says, peace to you, in verse 37. And it says, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost. And he begins to show them his hands, his feet. And he begins to, he asks them for something to eat. He's physically, bodily resurrected. 
They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. But look at verse 44. Hope you have your Bibles open. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now here we go, look at this. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and then he adds the Psalms. That's the entire Old Testament in our vernacular. And then it says, he said, they must be fulfilled. Then he did what? He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand the Word of God. Wouldn't you like to have been there? I don't know about you, but I bet that DVD tape series would have gone for a pretty big price, huh? What do you think? To be able to hear Jesus teach on the Old Testament, right? What did he do? He opened their minds. God, open our minds to see you in your word. So when you read the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that Jesus is in every little paragraph, but as you read the Old Testament and you see how their attempts to always look for someone to lead them failed, how someone always looking to lead them to glory and new heights, whether it's Moses to lead them across the the, the Red Sea, and to lead them into the promised land, he failed. And you go on to judges, and you go on to different ones, they all failed in some form or measure. David failed. But they all pointed to one who would come who would not fail. And that was the Messiah. So what man could not do, God has done in provision of Christ. The believer, we must have a recognition of the Bible that God has spoken in the Scriptures. Do we really believe? Do we really believe that this is God's Word? Now, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. Because if we really believe it's God's Word, it wouldn't sit in our car three or four days without ever wondering where it is. It wouldn't stay closed without us opening it and saying, God... I need to hear you today. If we really believed, we would approach God's Word like the psalmist says, teach me thy Word. Teach me thy Word. Shine your Word upon my life. Let it be a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. Or do we go to God's Word, men, I'll, I'll, I'll say this is usually about men, kind of like we approach when we're trying to put together the bicycle or some contraption on Christmas Eve. And then finally, when we put it together, we got 20 parts left. And then finally, we said, maybe I ought to look at the manual and find out how this thing works. We only go to the Bible when we have a crisis or a need. That isn't the way that God wants us to be. He wants us to humbly go before His Word to hear Him speak into our life. People, I've had people sit in my living room in places where I've passed her in the past. I remember one lady said... uh, Sat in my living room, nice people, wonderful people, and they sat in my room and said, Tell us, give me, what is God's word for us? I said, I don't know. I wasn't going to make something up. But she was wanting me to give her some kind of special message. You want to hear God talk? Read it out loud. Read the Bible out loud. All right? That's the sure word. That's the sure and reliable word. So the believer has a recognition that this is the Word of God, the Bible. Secondly, the believer 
must have a response to the Bible. We don't just approach it passively. It isn't just an intellectual exercise. Again, the Thessalonians, they had heard every kind of conceivable idea, philosophy. Do you think our culture is always, it's always coming along something new? But the thing that will stand the test of time, it will never be popular, but that which will stand the test of time is the reliable, sure Word of God. No matter how much the culture tries to bend it and twist it, these Thessalonians were exposed to every kind of cultish, false teaching, and it all ended up empty. It all ended up empty. But when they heard the message from the Apostle Paul, what did they do? They heard it not just as the Word of man but as the Word of God. Does that mean Paul was such a great, eloquent speaker? No, Paul himself admitted that he was a frail speaker. He was, you know, some historical accounts have him to be just kind of a short, unattractive man. Not that shortness is unattractive. Nobody go there, all right? By the way, when I went to the doctor last, I had always put 5'11 on my license, and they said I was 5'9". They said, you must have shrunk. I said, no, I'm not shrinking. I've been under the illusion I was taller than I was. That's why I wear these. It kind of helps my ego a little bit, get a little lift. But I don't know. How, we don't have a picture of the Apostle Paul. But there was nothing persuasive about him in his, in his person. You with me? What made the difference? You may say, you know what? I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a, you know, I can't do any of this. It doesn't matter. God is not concerned about your ability. He just wants your availability. Are you available to be used by God to open the word of life to somebody and share the gospel, share Christ, share the word of God? You see, they had a response to the Bible. And they received it just the way when they heard it, they understood it, They received it intellectually. They received it and they heard the message. God operates through, he's given us brains. He's given us minds. God didn't say when you became a Christian, check your brain at the door. You're not supposed to think. You're not supposed to have logic or understanding. But again, we don't depend on that. But now that we've been born again, that mind that God has made now is a mind that is attuned to Christ. Set your mind not on things of the earth, but on things that are above. God gave us minds of understanding, but the preached word, the word that was heard, was God's ordained method of propagating and transmitting his truth. You remember Romans 10, 17, for faith cometh by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It wasn't just an intellectual exercise of knowledge. But they received it. They, they, not just intellectually, but internally. They welcomed the word internally. I, didn't, I haven't measured, but they say there's roughly about 15, 16 inches between your head to your heart. Sometimes, with some of us, it's a mile wide to getting from here to what changes our heart. They internalize, if I can use that word, 
They internalized the word. It wasn't just an accumulation of knowledge, but they allowed the word of God to do its work in their life and bring transformation. Remember, James warns us about being hearers of the word alone, right? That we're not just to be hearers only, but to be what? Doers of the word. Put it into practice. James 4.17 says it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. You know, when we're exposed to the word of God, when we're exposed to truth, we're exposed to what Jesus says or the word of God, then we are accountable to God's word. I would say we're accountable whether we whether we hear it or not, but, but especially when we hear it, that we're accountable to it. The Thessalonians' message, the Thessalonians got the message, but the message got them. It changed their life. Let me read to you, look at verse 13. This is from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, which is becoming uh, popular, but I like how they worded this. He said, this is why we constantly thank God, because you were, because when you received the word of God, when you heard it from us, look at this, you what? You welcomed it. Do you welcome the word? Do you welcome the word of God? You say, oh, I welcome it when it tells me something that reinforces something I want to do. We get excited, right? But do you welcome it when it's correcting? You know, the word of God will correct you brings correction. Do you welcome it then? Do you welcome the Word of God? See, this was a church that welcomed the Word of God. You see, the objective message that Paul preached challenged their thinking intellectually, changed their hearts, and transformed their life. You see, again, it isn't enough just to have notebooks and Bible studies and to be able to chart out the book of Revelation, and to chart out the 70 weeks of Daniel, and to pinpoint the rapture, and all that, all that may be interesting and fun, but if it still does not affect the Word of God, if it still hasn't got down to where you live, if you're still lying and cheating, and involved in sexual immorality, and you're stealing from your employer, and you're cheating on your spouse, and you're lying, my friend, The Word of God has had no effect in your life. And let me tell you, more than likely, you are not a believer. Does that mean a believer always 100% perfection and obedience to the Word? Of course not. But you know what the Word of God does? The Word of God is like the north point on the compass. No matter how far you stray... It'll always point you back to that north point. When you're unsure, when you don't know what to do, oh, will it tell you what kind of car to buy? No. Will it tell you what kind of dishwasher to buy? Kenmore, Maytag? No. It's not a magic book. And some people have treated it like that. It's a book to be read and understood, and that's why I encourage you to bring Bibles and to be a student. People say, well, I don't know the Bible. I don't understand the Bible. Well, what do you think we're doing right now? We're talking about the Bible. I've done all the heavy lifting. You just take some notes and open your Bible and listen, go home, read it, process it, allow the Holy Spirit to 
saturated in your life. You see, this was a church that was exemplified in history because when the Apostle Paul began and planted this church, and I said that Acts 17 too talks about that, he says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He didn't go on there with a light show and magic tricks and a fog machine. You know, it is crazy what some churches do. You don't know if you're at Ringling Brothers Circus or what, right? He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And this is why he could write in chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, because our gospel came to you, remember this? We looked at this this first week. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Do you remember in the end of Acts chapter 2 when the Apostle Peter preached that dynamic message at the day of Pentecost? And the Bible says, I'm paraphrasing as you get towards the end of chapter 2, it says that they were cut to the heart. How? But the Word of God, they were cut to the heart with conviction. The Word of God came into them like a dagger and convicted them. And they said, what must we do? Peter says, repent. Be baptized. And you'll be saved. Be baptized. You're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Repent. But their response came through the brain, came through the heart, and they were cut to the heart with conviction. You know, the sad thing, even as a preacher, I have to confess that oftentimes I'm not cut to the heart as much as I should be. You see, the danger that professional ministers have is an overfamiliarity with this. You know, after 40 years, I can wake up at 4 in the morning and I'll put together something. Do you hear what I'm saying? And the danger and the scary thing, and I pray that God would always help me and, and if not, replace me is I don't come in here with a sense that this is God's word that we, this, is, this, is our, this is what we need to hear as a church you see I've never, I've never been interested in my in just growing in ministry and having lots of opportunities do a lot of different things I've never been drawn to just hearing myself talk there's a lot of people that like to preach because they just like hearing themselves What motivates me is that the primary way that I shepherd as your pastor is doing this. There's a lot of things I'm terrible at and I fall short of doing. And I can waste a lot of time doing. But I believe that not me. Listen, we're a dime a dozen. God has a lot of people. I don't want to be like Elijah. God, I'm the only one. Remember that? I'm the only one you got, God. He's like, I got hundreds you don't even know anything about. 
take ourselves too seriously. But I always want to take the word of God seriously. And we as a church need to always take the word of God seriously. And I'm grateful that in the 30 years of this church that the word of God has been taken seriously. You see, the word of God accomplishes its purpose. I love Psalm 19.7, again from the CSB. The instruction of the Lord, or the word of the Lord, is what? Perfect. And what does it do? Renewing one's life. So the believer has a recognition of the Bible that it's the Word of God. The believer has a response to tra- be transformed by the Word, to believe, practice. And thirdly, and last, is the believer is renewed from the Bible. What do I mean by renewed? Is that again, the renewal, to be made new. The Word, uh, kind of putting this idea forward again, the Word transforms our life as we're exposed to it. Look at verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You became imitators. When you heard the word, you didn't receive it just as my word, but the word of God, and it did what the word of God does. It has transforming power and you became imitators. In other words, you, 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 your, your life began to be molded and shaped in, in character and characteristics to that which reflected the church of God in Christ Jesus. But then he says something, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they, that they are as those in Judea, Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem, they're in Thessalonica. You suffered the same things. Paul said you became imitators. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17? For if anyone is in Christ, they are a new what? New creation. Old things have passed away. You see, a person who claims to be a Christian and born again, if, if the trajectory of their life isn't moving more and more towards Christ, and they're just still stuck, Look, I don't know a person's heart. But Paul was able to affirm in chapter 1, verse 3, that he knew that they were chosen by God, not because they had an E that said for elect on their forehead. That isn't how he knew. That was a joke, by the way, in case some of you are wondering if that really is. You know how he knew? You know how he knew? Their lives reflected the profession Their walk reflected the talk. And so the word of God, they became imitators, but there's something else here. Something happened to them that when they follow Christ, their lives changed. Now remember, the church at Thessalonica in Acts 17 was birthed out of deep-rooted persecution, and it resulted in Paul having to leave uh, under threat of his life, and that persecution, I'm sure, in fact, I know, didn't stop. But there was something about them immediately identifying with Christ as the people of God. You know, there are some nations, whether it be Egypt or Iran or 
Afghanistan, you know, that to be identified as a follower of Jesus, to be a part of a Christian church, is a death sentence. You can read testimonies on testimonies from Muslims, even some Orthodox, strict Jewish families, that when they became a follower of Jesus, Some of their families, I remember reading this of Jews who received Jesus as Messiah. Their families would literally hold a funeral for their child because as far as their child was concerned, they were dead. They were dead. They became a part of that Christ following. You see, there's a price. You see, they came to Christ. They received Christ And it was a cost. Their confession, their profession of faith in Jesus as Lord was costly. But but these believers were willing to pay that price to go the distance and persevere for Christ, even if it meant persecution and suffering. How do you explain this? It doesn't make sense how... A person would we will be willingly choose to bring suffering and persecution. It was the power of God working through them. See what the Word of God does. I'll just say a couple more words about that word imitators. They became imitators. Is that it changes your affections? Have you found that from the time you became a believer? And in some people, it was very instantaneous. And in some, it just happened over a progression of time. But the things that you had affections for, the things that you did, the things that you watched, and I'm not trying to bring Christianity down to just, you know, you just now want do this and do that. I'm not talking about that. But, but the things that you took pleasure in and joy in, all of a sudden now, those affections begin to change. They begin to change. That should encourage you that that's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You see, they became imitators, but notice what he says. This is important. I don't have time to to spend a lot of time breaking, but I'm just going to kind of simplify it. They became imitators of the Judean churches. That's the churches in Jerusalem and that surrounding region. And you know that that church, the church in Jerusalem, kind of the I don't want to call it the mothership, but I mean, that was, that was the, the springboard, and eventually it was Antioch and other places as the church grew beyond Jerusalem. But specifically in Jerusalem, they were facing intense persecution and suffering. And so these Thessalonians, thank you, who probably would never ever meet anybody from Jerusalem unless they came up there or one of them traveled, but they immediately identified that what they had, if that's what it meant to be identified with Christ, we'll do it. You see, I think that there was something that later we would see how Paul would relate to this in Philippians 3. Listen, remember what Paul said in Philippians 3 about his own transformation? He said, but whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How does that How does that square with what is often propagated in American churches today? That when you became a believer and you began to imitate and reflect Christ and his and his church, you will suffer. How well does that go over? It's quite different, isn't it? Jesus said the kingdom mentality in the Sermon on the Mount is you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the kingdom mindset. And let me just round this out in verse 15 and 16. And again, this is really kind of a a bit of a difficult, but let me just kind of simplify it. Not because you're ignorant or dumb, just because I need to simplify it for me to even try to do it in the next few minutes. Otherwise, we'll be here till 2. Let's just say, I will be here till 2. <laughs> All right. Look at verse 15 and 16. Actually, let me back it up for 14. I'm not sure what's on the screen. And you brothers, again, you know, just kind of read it in context. And you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, just down in Jerusalem. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. In other words, you suffered among your Thessalonian people the same thing as the believers in Judea did from the Jews. You're experiencing the same thing that when you cross the line of faith, you find out how popular Jesus is. But Jesus, and I'm just interjecting before verse verse 15. Remember Jesus said, don't be surprised when they persecute you. That a student is not above his teacher. The same way that they came after me, they're going to come after you. Remember Jesus said that? Verse 15, he says, As they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They hindered the gospel going forth to the Gentiles so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come up on them at last. Now let me just let me just kind of say a few things. That's a that's a that's a heavy passage there, but let me just make sure you understand what he's not saying. When Paul uses and often the scriptures talk about the Jews, it is not referring to the entire Jewish race, every person without exception. It's kind of a shorthand referring to a specific group that set themselves against Messiah, Jesus. Primarily the political, religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, you know, that, that cabal, that group. So it's not 
It's not a statement that in any form or fashion is to perpetuate anti-Semitic ideas towards the Jews. Which is stupid because Paul's a Jew. All right? Jesus was a Jew. Never got that idea, but anyway. <laughs> but he's saying that you, uh, you're walking through the same fire that your believers in Jerusalem are walking through. And he's commending them as that is an attribute of a genuine testimony of genuine faith. You see, Paul longed for his fellow Jews and their salvation, Romans 10 and 11. But the Jewish nation had a unique placement in the sovereign plan of God, didn't they? They had the oracles of God, the law of God. And uh, if you've been in the Romans, Paul talks about that in, in uh, Romans 1, 2. And they had the oracles of God. They, they were presented the Messiah, Jesus. But those in power representing the nation, the people, did what with that? He came unto his own, John 1 says, and his own what? Received him not. They rejected the king. They rejected Messiah. Now that's going to play a role later in our understanding of the rapture in chapter 4 and 5. But it says, but their wrath, the last verse, see it in verse 16, but wrath has come upon them at last. But you remember what Paul said in chapter 1 verse 10? That for the believer, Jesus has delivered us from wrath. You catch that? And that will play a little pivot in our understanding of the second coming and the tribulation. And see, this judgment is the judgment. God's wrath isn't just exclusively for these select Jews who represented the nation and, and rejected Christ and brought this condemnation upon the nation. But this wrath is, scripturally, the Bible speaks that it's for all people who reject Christ. It's for all people who reject God's way of salvation. And so, he, in kind of shorthand, he's saying that not only did your affections become transformed... But your direction, you aren't going the direction that these folks under wrath went. God has changed your direction so that now instead of being under wrath, you're under life in Christ. You see, anybody who fails to allow the Word to change their eternal direction will face the wrath of God. Their direction was changed. The Bible, the Word of God, renewed their life. And see, Paul can speak firsthand about that. Because if you know the Apostle Paul's testimony of how God radically changed his life, what Paul could not do for himself, God did for him. I was reading a story about a Navy captain who was sailing a, a big Navy vessel 
and he came up on a big light there in the ocean, and he thought it was a ship coming at him. And he was a high-ranking naval official in the U.S. Navy at this time, and he got on this big bullhorn out of the, the speakers of the ship to communicate to the whatever this light, this vessel, whatever it was, and he said to this ship behind the light, move 10 degrees south or we're going to crash. And this voice came from the light that said, I shall not move. You move 10 degrees north so you don't crash. Captain was getting irritated. And he got on the announcer and the bullhorn. He says, don't you know who I am? I am a captain in the United States Navy, and I order you to move 10 degrees south so that we do not crash. And the voice came back from the light and said, I shall not move. You move 10 degrees north so that you don't crash. The captain is beside himself because he's not used to anybody disobeying orders. And he got on the speaker again, and he said, Do you hear me say that I am a captain in the United States Navy? And the voice from the light came back and said, Yes, I heard you. I am the lighthouse. You see, the Word of God is our lighthouse. The Word bends and changes me. And the kingdom mindset that we see exemplified among the church at Thessalonica is a church that we could be reminded of in our modeling as a congregation, as a people, that seeking first the kingdom of God involves seeking or submitting to His will through His Word in our life.